You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We continue our series of sermons this morning on the book of Revelation. We've come to Revelation 12, and in connection with that, I'd like to read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings... Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God, as you can find it in Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged by the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I think that most of you know where ITB, or Intercontinental Truck Body, is, is located on 192nd Street in Surrey. At one time or another, you've all driven by it. And now, when you drive by it, what do you see? On some days, surely the answer is not much. Well, sometimes there may be some newly assembled truck bodies or trailers standing there or Otherwise, there's some kind of huge, humongous box with weird shapes standing there. The point is that often there is not much to see. But then if you actually step onto the property, go in the front door and ask for a tour, you discover that behind the scenes there is a whole lot more going on. There's a different world back there that you can't see from the front of the building or from the road. Street view is not everything. It tells you only part of the story. Sometimes, indeed often, to see what's really going on, you need to go backstage. And now, beloved, in a sense, that's also true of our text of this morning. In the previous chapters in the book of Revelation, we've been busy with seals and trumpets and churches and letters and angels and scrolls with witnesses and beasts. And in some ways, we've seen quite a lot. But I would remind you this morning, we have not seen everything. Nor have we really had a look backstage or behind the front door. Yes, and that's now where Revelation 12 goes. If you will, in a sense, it takes us backstage. It gives us a deeper, fuller, more complete picture of what in the world is really, truly going on. And so this morning, let's open the front door, go through it, and see what's behind it. And I preach to you on the theme, the woman, the child, and the dragon. 
So the woman, the child, and the dragon. Some of you might want to remark, it sounds like C.S. Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, only it's not. I even dare say it's a lot more meaningful than that. For look, Revelation 12 opens, and what do you see? Well, first of all, if you look at these first number of verses, what you really see is an unstoppable birth. It begins with a woman. Only this is no ordinary woman, for she is clothed, it says, with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. This is quite the lady. Who is she? What does she represent? That's, of course, a question that we often ask in the book of Revelation because it's a book of symbols. And the best clue to whom she represents is to be found in the word twelve, for in Scripture, twelve almost always stands and represents the number of the people of God. And furthermore, notice this woman is all lit up with the sun. She's a constant source of light. In addition, she has moonbeams under her feet, which actually points to power. And finally, she has a crown on her head with 12 stars, indicating that this woman is special. She's, she's honored, she's unique, she's set apart. And indeed, take all of the imagery here and compare it to the rewards promised to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And you cannot escape the conclusion that this woman represents the people or the church of God. The people of God who are supposed to light up the world. But yet there's something also to note about this woman. Something special, and that is that she is expecting a child. Why, she's even so far that she's almost on the point of her delivery. So so really, it's saying this woman, this people of God is expecting. This people is pregnant. The plot begins to thicken, you see. Yes, and it does so even more, for next we are told an enormous red dragon who has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. That's how he's described. Rather fierce. Rather scary. Intimidating. Huge. All decked out. And who is this red dragon? Well, once again, there is one word especially that clues us in, and it's the word dragon. Because in Scripture, dragon always seems to point to the devil. And the fact that it has seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, points to its power over creation. It indicates that this dragon, this monster, is never ever to be underestimated. And notice the dragon is red. And that means, you guessed it, blood. Though it's not to be overlooked as well as its tail, it sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven and flings them to the earth. And some think that this refers to angels being flung to the earth. Others see it simply as a further description of his destructive power. 
And so thus far, you have two main characters. You have the woman, and you have a dragon. But then next, our text goes on to describe the actions of the dragon. Verse 4 says that, that the dragon does something. He, he, as it were, positions himself in front of this woman who is about to give birth. Can you believe it? It's as if the dragon's acting like a midwife or a doctor. And realize this is not simply a case of wrong doctor or bad manners. No, this is actually a case of evil intent. For this text says that this woman is, this dragon is waiting for the child to be born because he wants to devour it. He wants to eat it up. You see, this dragon is murderous intent. He's horribly inextricably evil. So what happens? Well, the birth takes place, and indeed it is a special birth, for our text says that the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And again we ask, who now is this son, this special child? And again, the clue is right before our eyes. It's in those words, the iron scepter, which points us back to Psalm 2 that we've sung together about the birth and the coming of a very special Son of God. But there is still the murderous dragon. Does he somehow manage to devour, to eat up the male child? Well, the answer, as you can read, is no. We're told that the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In other words, he's rescued and promoted. The child escapes. And by the way, notice, so does the woman. She goes out of all places into the desert and stays there for 1,260 days. And here you need to understand the desert represents a place of safety and of refuge. When the Israelites escaped from the clutches of Pharaoh of Egypt, where did they go? They went into the desert of Sinai, out of his reach and power. And how long did they stay in the desert of Sinai and in the desert of Sin? Well, for an interim period of time. In the Old Testament, 1,260 days represents the time between the house of bondage and the house or the land of promise. So, beloved, that's the first picture that you get here in Revelation chapter 12. What does it mean? Well, I think that many of you already know. For really, this is actually nothing more than the book of Revelation's unique perspective on all of Old Testament history. And indeed, you can say this is Revelation's inside take on that history. You know, outwardly, when you read it, it looks like one struggle-filled 
following after another, one nasty opponent after another. Why, the Old Testament you and I know is filled with close calls and near misses. It's exciting, it's nerve-wracking, often it's nail-biting. But you know, it's more than that. It's one long, great, intense, bitter, spiritual struggle. Because behind it and backstage, it's all about the devil who is pulling out all the stops and doing everything that he possibly can to prevent, in one way or another, the birth of the Christ child. Oh, I know, some people see only one long list of separated, isolated incidents. But the book of Revelation wants all of us to realize that that all of these incidents are part of one and the same scheme. Cain versus Abel, the daughters of man versus the sons of God, Esau versus Jacob, Pharaoh versus Israel, Saul versus David, Jezebel versus Elijah, and you can go on and on and on. At bottom, they're all satanic attacks. Yes, and in the end, they all fail. For look, the the dragon does not manage to eat up the child. The child is snatched up, rescued, saved, even glorified. And you can think too in this connection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think, for example, of his birth. It's a very narrow thing. Satan's henchman, King Herod, almost manages to devour him. And next, Satan has three goes at Jesus in the wilderness. And thereafter, he tempts him with power and with suffering and with the cross. But yet nothing works. The child is raised, ascends into the heavens and sits the right hand of God. So what does all of that tell you? What's the overriding message here? Surely this. Nothing can stop our God and the fulfillment of His will. No matter how dire and damaging the attacks may be, none of them and prevail. What men do, even what Satan does in the end, none of it will triumph. The birth, the kingdom of God, the will of God, all will come to pass. You and I, just like the church of old, just like the church in the days when the book of Revelation was being written, You and I do not need to live in fear or in doubt. Our God is in control. And so, beloved, the first picture here is a picture of an unstoppable birth. The second picture in Revelation 12 is about actually a defeated accuser. Verse 7 opens, notice, and we are, as it were, in heaven. 
And believe it or not, there is war in heaven of all places. On the one side stands Michael, Israel's special guardian angel, you may say, if you look at Daniel 10 and 12. And on the other side stand the dragon and his angels. And together they fight. They fight, and the dragon loses. He's not strong enough, it says. And so he and his henchmen are evicted. They get turfed out of heaven. Yes, and notice, notice how emphatic the book of Revelation is about this. John writes, and, and you just can't miss it in verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Notice, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Notice how John stresses the who. It's the dragon, the devil, the, the Satan, the deceiver who leads the world astray. And notice also the stress on the what he is hurled. It says repeatedly, kicked out of heaven. And the result, in heaven, there is rejoicing. And what kind of rejoicing? Well, rejoicing that the salvation, power, kingdom, and authority of Christ has triumphed, verse 10a. Rejoicing that the accuser of our brothers has been hurled down. And of course, again, you may wonder, what's this about? What's really going on here? Well, maybe the best way to explain it is to think of the opening chapters of the book of Job. You may recall chapter 1 of Job tells us that Satan had free access to heaven. He could just stroll right in. He could have a conversation with God. He could even challenge God. And as well, at a certain point, he accuses Job. And Satan receives finally permission to put Job to the test, and in the ringer. Only Job doesn't crack. He doesn't curse God for the loss of his cattle and oxen, his servants, his wealth, even for the loss of his children. He doesn't know what's happening or why it's happening, but notice Job persists in confessing that the Lord is sovereign and to be praised. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan fails. But he doesn't give up. In Job chapter 2, we see Satan in heaven again. The angels are there and he is there. Strange company to say the least. Yet once more, God and Satan have a talk. And then Satan begins by accusing God of holding his holy hand over Job's head. Job is nothing more than a fair weather friend. He knows exactly on what side his bread is being buttered. And so Satan smears him and accuses him and slanders him. And finally God relents and allows Satan to test Job some more. 
Now, what does that show you? It shows you that at bottom, Satan is an accuser. He longs to break Job. He he loves to trip him up. He lives for the day when Job will curse God and die. He's the great accuser. But notice in our text, he's not just the accuser of Job. As a matter of fact, Job's not even mentioned. It says, but also of our brothers. His accusations are not just directed at Job. No, they're directed at all the believers. He has all of us in his sights. We're all his targets. And let's face it, we are easy targets too. Satan does not have to dig too deep to dig up dirt on us. Every day we manage, don't we, to mess up? We don't do what we should, and we do what we shouldn't do, and loose words and wandering eyes and wayward thoughts torpedo so much of what we do. There is a sense in which Satan, as an accuser, has a field day with us. And yet, and yet it says, heaven rejoices. Why? Because in heaven, the song is all about the fact that this accuser has been picked up and thrown out. Now you ask yourself, how can that be? We're such easy targets. Well, it can be because in spite, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our vulnerabilities, and in spite of all of our sins, we have overcome him. And if you ask, how have we in the world managed to overcome him? Well, look at verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. He's been overcome. So what's this? This is about the saints who arm themselves with the blood of the Lamb of God and their testimony about Him. This is about a power so mighty that all of Satan's accusations wither and die. Indeed, the blood of the Lamb And the testimony or the message about this lamb is so great, so wonderful, so strong, so powerful that it blunts all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Against such blood and such testimony, Satan cannot stand. And the result... He is evicted from heaven. Today, he can no longer walk simply into God's presence and hurl accusations at him about us. No, the Lamb has come victorious into heaven. 
And there's no longer any place for the devil. And you know, that's why there's re- rejoicing in heaven. That's why there's a great party going on in heaven. And there's even some rejoicing on earth. Our accuser has been defeated. Christ has paid our ransom. His blood cleanses us. His testimony keeps us and protects us. And we need that protection because while Satan has lost now access to heaven, he does still have access to earth. And you know, that brings us to the third picture here in our text. We see an unstoppable birth. We see a defeated accuser. And next, what you're going to see is an invincible church. For note, the song of heaven ends with woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. And what does he do among us? Well, verse 13 says that he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The people of God are now on the receiving end of the devil's rage. He knows he's been defeated. He's furious. And actually, his fury is really a sign of his weakness. It's the last gasp of a dying foe. But you know, even that's not to be underestimated. He can still do a lot of damage. He can still cause a lot of hurt and pain and suffering. And he does. Thankfully, however, the people of God are not, notice, left without protection. Verse 14 tells us that the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert. You've heard that before, right? Isn't that what God says that he does for his people Israel back in Exodus 19? How I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the language here. And in addition, we are told that the woman will be cared for in the desert for a time, times, and half a time. And there you have that three and a half again, that 1,260 days, that time period that indicates an interim period of time. As I mentioned in the Old Testament, it sometimes indicates the time between Israel being in Egypt and in Canaan. And and so today you can say the church of Jesus Christ lives in this interim period. We are living between the advents, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And while we are in the between these advents, we're also, in a sense, Revelation would have us see in the desert. And that means we are in a protected place. Now I know, I know it doesn't always look like that. Often, even, and especially perhaps today, it looks like the church is in dire straits. Desert living is not easy living. 
There have been in the past, there are today, and there will be in the future great times when God's people are being persecuted and oppressed, rent asunder by heresies, and sore oppressed. But nevertheless, notice too that the people of God as a whole continue to move forward. Notice that if you look at the centuries and if you have a little bit of sensitivity to church history, you see that the oppression does not destroy us. That persecution does not wipe us out as the people of God. That the devil's attacks, no matter how many and how fierce and how often, do not do us in. You know, verse 15 even speaks about the serpent spewing water like a river in order to sweep away the woman. But the earth helped the woman and swallowed up the river. That's supposed to make you think of Isaiah 43, verse 3. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. See, even today, God protects a people from the fury and the rage of the devil. The devil cannot eradicate the people of God. The verses 13 to 16 remind us of God's constant protection. Nothing, not even satanic attacks, can destroy the bride of Christ. She is invincible. And why is she invincible? Because, well, he protects her. And because he enables and empowers this people as well. He enables us to do what? Well, two things. To obey and to hold on. Notice verse 17. He enables us to obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You know, when you look at it carefully, it's rather simple. I know, of course, we make it very complicated. But it's not. When all is said and done, our task in this in-between time, between the advents of going and coming again, is that we should live lives filled with two very obvious things. First, we need to keep on obeying God's commandments. Now, there are Christians who believe that all of that's passé. But I would say to you, obviously, the book of Revelation doesn't think that that's passé. These commandments still play a role in your life, even as we've read them earlier in this worship service. Revelation says, keep obeying the commandments of God. Which is another way of saying, keep on hanging on to holiness and sanctification and redemption. 
And the second thing it says we need to do is to hold on to the testimony of Jesus or our testimony about Jesus. Simply said, keep on confessing Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, your King and your Redeemer. So what do we need in the interim period? Obedience and faithfulness. Those are the key, the keys to right, powerful, preserving, and future living. As it says so often already in the book of Revelation, hold on to what you have. Hold on so that no one will take away your crown. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.